evening. For this morning, Romans chapter 14, let me read verses 13 through 23. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat. Because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for his help. Father in heaven, open our eyes. We pray this every Sunday, morning and evening, whenever we open the word, because we acknowledge you're the teacher. We are the disciples, the learners. We are the ones who need to be conformed uh, to your will and to your image. And so we pray that through the reading and now the preaching of the word, through the whole service of worship today, which has been shaped and informed by your word, uh, that we may experience the transforming grace of God. So thank you for your mercies. Make Christ precious to us and give us wisdom to take this script, this narrative, these instructions, and to live it out, to act it out in our lives here in the church, in our families, wherever we may be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is God's kingdom like? We read all throughout the Bible, the kingdom of God. What is it like? And the answer to that question probably explains most of the antagonism towards Jesus in his earthly ministry. You see, after suffering the Babylonian exile, then foreign harassment when the Jews returned to their homeland... Greek oppression, liberation under the Maccabean freedom fighters, but then losing it again to the Roman rule, the Israelites were ready for a deliverer to bring in the kingdom or the rule of God. And they had a very good image of what that would look like. That person would drive out the Romans. He would establish the rule God promised in the prophets. The only question was, what do we need to do now to bring that to pass? And so when Jesus appears preaching, do not resist an evil person. And if someone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. I mean, no wonder people resisted his message. That's not exactly the behaviors that overthrow an empire, or at least 
as we imagine overthrowing an empire. If you live out those ethics, they certainly undermine many of the values of this world. You think about how Paul instructed Philemon on how he should treat the runaway and now returned slave Onesimus. I mean, counseling him to treat that slave gently like an equal, that's placing a time bomb beside that whole institution. But nonetheless, Paul is taking that slow route, that undermining route, and he's not engaging it head on. And failing to engage it head on, well, in most people's minds, that won't get the job done. Practicing the behaviors that Jesus advocates, that won't bring an immediate end to the foreign oppression. In fact, it may invite it. And yet those are the kinds of people whom Jesus says possess the kingdom of heaven who are perfect as their heavenly father is perfect not perfect in that you've obtained moral perfection sense but when you love those who hate you and forgive them that's being like your heavenly father because what matters most in his kingdom it's not power and authority but love so that was jesus's vision of the kingdom And what we see again this week in Romans is that that vision has informed Paul's instructions to the church. You see the strong and the weak condemning and despising one another because of their different approaches to disputable matters. They need to learn to accept one another. And the strong especially must not put pressure on the weak to sin against their conscience. They must make instead the church a place where people grow spiritually instead of experiencing distress. And Paul has a counsel that way because our bent is to put ourselves first. To do what pleases us regardless of how it affects others. It's just a bent we all have. But as we read in the Gospels, and as Paul hints out throughout this passage, Jesus did not please himself. But he gave his life, he gave his liberty to save both Jews and Gentiles. And that should convince us, both by example and by the Spirit's work in our heart, that should convince us then that loving and serving others are the highest values of God's kingdom. And we introduced that thought last week, and we'll see it as we finish this chapter today. So let's jump back in, considering once again how the gospel heals our divisions in the church. And we'll continue that idea that we introduced last week. It heals our divisions by teaching us what matters most in the church. So we looked last week at verses 13 through 15. Again, Paul there, he encourages the strong. Don't put pressure on the weak to sin against their conscience. Yes, all foods are clean. But if someone considers something to be unclean, for them it is unclean. And they should not eat it until they are confident that such an action pleases God. Otherwise, for them, it's sin. But when the believers were gathering for worship and common meals, the strong were not providing a kosher option for the weak believers. And so the weak believers were experiencing distress. They were being tempted to sin against their conscience. And Paul says no one should ever sin against their consciences. No, your conscience isn't perfect. But it's a God-given device to warn you against doing wrong. And when you ignore it, you damage it. 
And that can put you on the path to spiritual ruin. And furthermore, it may even be that as the weak experience this kind of treatment from the strong, and again, probably the weak are majority Jewish, they may be thinking, ah, man, joining these Christians was a mistake. They're leading me to disobey God. Maybe I should give up on this whole Christian faith idea. And so Paul counsels the strong in verse 13. Make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. And he gives reasons for that in verses 14 and 15. That's what we looked at last week. And then picking up today, he now approaches the same issue, but from another angle in verse 16, where he writes, Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. Christian liberty is good. And for many Christians, when they they understand this doctrine, it begins to work its way out in their lives. It brings great enjoyment of the Christian life. Freedom from the ceremonial demands of the Mosaic Law and freedom from any kind of man-made regulation. Regulation's not based on God's word. That's good. That's enjoyable. And Paul wants God's people to enjoy their liberty. But the strong can enjoy their liberty in such a way and push their practices on others in such a way that it causes their good liberty to be spoken of as evil. And maybe you've experienced that, some of you in your life. Maybe the particular background you came for in Christianity, more traditional, more restrictive, and then you moved into a new area that perhaps understood Christian liberty. But the way some people approached it and acted about it could be really off-putting. It maybe came across as obnoxious or immature. Paul doesn't want that good to be spoken of as evil. And why? Why is that a big deal to Paul? Because liberty in Christ is part of the Christian gospel. And Paul would not want the gospel spoken of as evil. One of the original criticisms of Christianity is that it didn't have a mechanism for producing the obedient lifestyle that the Mosaic law demanded. And Paul has reasoned throughout Romans, especially chapter 6, and now here in 14. The gospel can actually produce what the law never could. But it doesn't do it through the demands of the law. It does it with grace and love. Those spiritual realities produce a quality of life the law cannot produce. And Paul doesn't want the strong to give ammunition to those critics by using their liberty from the law in such a way that it causes others to sin against their conscience and thus to regress in cultivating spiritual discernment. Don't don't feed into that criticism by pushing others down a bad path. And then verse 17 gives the underlying reason for these ethics. Here's the why. This is what I've been driving towards with our talk of God's kingdom. Paul writes, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Why should the strong not insist on having everything their way? Why should they accommodate the scruples of the weak? Because what matters most in the kingdom of God in the church, in the place where God manifests his reign, what matters more than anything else is not whether you eat the meat or drink the wine, but whether you pursue righteousness, peace, 
and joy in the Holy Spirit. And let's look at those three terms closely for a minute. First, Paul speaks of righteousness. You've heard that word a lot as we've gone through this series in Romans. In many places, it refers to the status that God gives those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And then in other places, it refers to the righteous behavior that flows from those who have a right status. And that's probably the sense Paul intends here. What matters most in the kingdom is that God's subjects conduct themselves appropriately. Now, it's interesting that Paul would say that here because what is he been saying throughout the whole chapter? Hey, it's okay if you don't get it right on certain disputable matters. On those categories of things, you don't have to get it just right. There can be a diversity of practice. And so when Paul says righteousness here, he may be referring specifically to the right conduct of accepting one another on disputable matters. Rather than getting it right on every issue, do the right thing by accepting one another. Second, Paul mentions peace here, and I think it's easy to see the relevance of that term to the present discussion. Again, what matters most in the church isn't that we get everything right, but that people, or that everyone gets their way, but that we live in peace with one another. That the church is a place of harmony and mutual support. And in order to accomplish those things, at times we all have to make sacrifices. Or maybe even do things that make us feel embarrassed in front of others. One commentator notes, uh, the powerful, privileged, and status-conscious Gentile Roman believers, that may be one way of describing the strong. He argues against the background of Roman culture. The terms strong and weak are as much about status and honor, which shaped all of Roman culture, as about ethnicity. And that makes sense in the first century world. Again, the strong are probably the majority Gentile in the church. So if they act this way towards their fellow believers, if they accommodate the scruples of these mainly Jewish believers, that will invite the disdain of the wider Roman society. And those who have the power, who have the privilege, who have the majority, will look silly in the eyes of those around them, saying, why are you acting this way? And we talk at times about the world you know, rejecting Christian ideas. Maybe, maybe they'll reject our morals. There will be antagonism towards the moral stand of the church. That may happen. But Paul says you can also invite antagonism by modeling love and acceptance of one another. So that's a challenge to us, that our inclusivity is as much a part of our witness as where we draw the lines. And then lastly, Paul mentions joy and the Holy Spirit. And that's probably the result of the first two. So when there is righteousness and when there is peace in the church, then believers experience joy from the Holy Spirit. And that's a joy that's expressed in our unified worship of God. And so Paul concludes this idea with verse 18, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives 
human approval. And let that language take you back to Romans 12.1 that began this whole final section. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And I know often when those verses are preached and read, maybe, maybe what we think of is, okay, I'm going to give myself to God in consecration, and I'm going to live the right way. I'm going to get things right. And that, that's a good concern. That's been the driving concern in these disputable matters. Who's right? I mean, people take the positions they do because they want to do right. They want to please God. That's not wrong. But notice that Paul reframes that whole approach by saying, accepting one another, that is what pleases God. That is giving yourself to God as a living sacrifice. One commentator writes, the appropriate behavior of a Christian is to be the servant of Christ by respecting and loving fellow Christians. The one who serves Christ, not by eating or not eating, but by focusing on righteousness, peace, and joy. That one is pleasing to God. And that is focusing on what really matters in the kingdom. So let's look at one more idea from this chapter today. The gospel heals our divisions by encouraging us to practice our beliefs with respect for others' consciences. Like I know that's all long. It's printed there on the bulletin. That, that we practice our beliefs with respect for others' consciences. A balance there. Paul writes in verse 19, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Now there's going to be a little overlap here in these last verses with what we've already seen. As I said, the, the main idea is verse 13. And all that follows is the reasons we should embrace it. And then Paul circles back and he restates his main idea again at the end. So here Paul is placing this priority on our pursuit of peace in the church. He says we should make every effort. And it's not the same Greek word, but the English reminds me of that passage in 2 Peter. Where Peter tells us, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. And such virtues, according to Peter, they make you a participant in the divine nature. In other words, the person who has those qualities, they are like God. And so Paul is saying here in Romans 14, let me give you some qualities that make you like God. What is God like? He pursues peace. Peace on earth, Jesus came to bring. Peace between God and man. Peace between humans with one another. God pursues peace with us. He, He builds us up in the faith. The Holy Spirit speaks to us through the word and instructs us and builds us up in the faith. Jesus said the Son of God didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And the Spirit of God, working through the Word of God, as we know the Son of God, is at work to give his people peace and to build them up in the faith. And Paul is saying that's what church should be like. A place of peace where we build one 
another up. Where those qualities and those concerns, that would shape, that would drive our interactions with one another. We'd be very conscious of how our words and our conduct accomplish those goals. Trying to put into practice in our relationships the values that Paul has set forth, particularly there in verse 17. And so verse 20 then states the same idea, but now it comes as a prohibition. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. Now you may wonder, okay, is it wrong then to eat or drink anything that distresses someone in any context. In other words, if anyone disagrees with anything I do, is it off limits 100%? No. And I think Paul will make that clear in verse 22. So if you hold that question in your mind, we'll speak to it in just a moment. What he's referring to here in verse 20 is what he's already said. You shouldn't act in a way that causes someone else to stumble. Key word, cause. Through the environment or through your actions, or through lack of options, or something else, does the weak believer feel pressured to sin against their conscience? Are they trapped where the only way forward is to do something that causes them distress? That is something Paul says we must not do. Why? Because it threatens to destroy the work of God. God is at work to save all kinds of people and bring them into a unified worshiping assembly. So if we are pushing people away, we're going counter to God's work. If people cannot be welcomed to the assembly, if they can't integrate into the assembly in a conscientious way, Paul says that threatens God's work. And so again, I mean, Paul is tough here. I mean, he's really forcing us to think about what really matters to us. I mean, is getting our way worth possibly destroying the work of God? I mean, is the way I conduct myself at church, is that inviting to all kinds of Christians? Do the things I talk about, the things I celebrate, the things that get me excited, is that fostering unity or division? And what kind of environment am I creating in the area of disputable matters. And and if that sounds like, well, that's just way too much of an ask, Paul writes in verse 21, it is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. Better to go without than to harm a fellow believer. Better to lose something than to destroy the work of God. And so that is just, that is the heavy obligation that Paul lays on the strong in order to welcome the weak. And so now in the last two verses, here here he returns to the more even-handed advice that opened chapter 14 on how both groups can welcome and respect one another. So in verse 22 he writes, so whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. So just a moment ago, I said, hold that question. Do I think Paul's language 
about causing others to stumble means you have to give up every practice that might possibly distress someone in any context. Some approach the issue of Christian liberty that way. They say it's your liberty to give it up for everybody else. But I think that's an error. I think that's missing what Paul says. And this verse is one of the reasons I think that. Because Paul is saying, look, you have every right to hold your beliefs before God and to practice your convictions. So if you can pursue certain disputable matters with a good conscience, then go for it. That, that's a good position to be in. You're, you're blessed. You're happy if you don't condemn yourself by what you approve. And you can practice it in such a way before God that you enjoy it and you're not putting pressure on anyone else to join you there. That's what Paul has counseled, is that when the strong believers practice those convictions, they do it in such a way that it doesn't put pressure on the weak. Verse 23, again, But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. In other words, if your actions do not arise from a conviction that your faith allows you to do that action, then don't do it. It is sin for you. And so Paul's counsel to the strong is don't act in a way that puts people in position to do what verse 23 describes. You can practice your beliefs and your convictions, but not in a way that pressures someone And so, friends, this is the life of the kingdom of God. And I hope we can see from Paul's words throughout this chapter that this is a good place to be. God's kingdom is a good kingdom. He's designed it well to be a place of righteousness, peace, joy. Who doesn't want that? A place of acceptance and spiritual strength. Who doesn't need that? That's what the church can be. And we can get there by walking the path that Jesus walked first, this path of love and concern for one another. So let's give thanks to God and let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, again, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ and his humility and his sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you for the finished work of Christ to purchase redemption and reconciliation and to bring us to God. Thank you that Christ rose from the dead and now sits at the right hand of the Father, reigning over all and pleading for the Father's promises to be kept. So, Lord, that is our prayer today, that you teach us to obey these things. We've read this passage, and there's questions about the background, exactly what it looked like originally, how it might translate into Our day and age, we need the wisdom to discern what that would look like. We need the wisdom to discern disputable matters. So, Lord, give us wisdom. That's what you tell us in Hebrews, that the word of God is sharp so that we can discern between good and evil. Make us a wise people that are skilled to discern. And the Spirit of God so uh, shapes, stoke our hearts. Uh, that we love these virtues and pursue them, that we make every effort uh, to live them out. And I pray then that by your grace, the kingdom of God would flourish here in Roebuck. 
And I pray it would flourish beyond. Think of the folks who live here in Roebuck or others who live in Pauline or Reedville and beyond wherever we may be living or working or interacting with others. May the kingdom of God go with us. Uh, May we embody you to others. May they see the image of God in us. May the reign of God make a difference in our lives. And so that here in this assembly and in this community and beyond, we might see your kingdom come. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing in closing hymn 701, Redeemed How I Love to Proclaim It, hymn 701. Stand with me.